0: It is our privilege to bring to you the following message, supported by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our normal Sunday morning service times. Pastor Rick Foster is serving as our interim senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church. And as Pastor Rick continues in the book of Philippians, today we're in chapter 4, verse 2, where Paul gives an appeal for unity and steadfastness. Let's join Pastor Rick now in a sermon entitled Our Conflict with Conflict. This is part 14 of Joy in Our Journey. Here's Rick.
1: When the British and French were fighting in Canada back in the 1750s, Admiral Phelps was the commander of the British fleet. He was instructed to anchor outside of Quebec and wait and support the ground forces of the British army that were going to come and to attack the city. While he waited, though, for the British forces to show up, he was annoyed by looking into the city and seeing on top of a nearby cathedral statues of saints that had been placed there. So he ordered his men to load the cannons and to shoot and destroy those statues. Now, no one knows how many rounds he fired or how many of the statues were knocked down, but we do know that when the land forces finally arrived and were given the signal to attack, Admiral Phipps was of no help whatsoever because he had used up all of his ammunition shooting at the saints. (laughs) You know, it saddens our hearts, but it really doesn't typically surprise us when wars or conflicts break out across our globe. I mean, Mark chapter 13 and verse 7 warns every single generation that this is going to happen. There are going to be wars. There are going to be rumors of wars. And so even though we would earnestly wish or actually work towards world peace, we know the reality that conflict is going to erupt somewhere sometime, so it doesn't really stun us at all. When... A coup happens in sub-Sahara Africa. Or when Pakistan and India exchange shots over their disputed border. Or when American jets bomb an ISIS stronghold. But our sadness starts getting mixed with embarrassment when conflicts erupt into hostility within the church. When believers end up brawling. <laughs> A church outside of Detroit, Michigan, was having his annual congregational meeting when one member decided to show how strongly he felt against an, a line or an agenda item. He pulled out a gun and shot two members who were, for the pro, who were for that line item. Bradenton, Florida. A church had to call police to come in and restore order in their Sunday morning worship service because there was a group of members who tried a hostile takeover because of their disagreements with the church leadership. Many of us know or we've heard of churches that have split because they couldn't agree on the color of carpet to put in the new building. We know of believers that sit on opposite sides of the worship center, not because of the air conditioning, but because they can't stand one another any longer. We know of visible or smoldering animosity that goes on inside of churches, and it is embarrassing. Are we getting to the point where churches are going to have to install metal detectors before you can come into the worship service? Are we going to have to put up signs that says, it could be hazardous to your health to attend church? And that's why what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4 and two verses that we're going to look at this morning reveals his concern for how believers handle their conflicts and their relationships with one another. In fact, it's interesting that the New Testament authors are consistent. That if your faith in Jesus Christ does not positively impact the way you deal with your conflicts with others, then you may not have the real thing. So Paul's words here to us in Philippians 4 verse 2 and, and verse 3 are not dusty wisdom for a church church in a different culture 2,000 years ago, they are relevantly applicable to us right here on this campus in 2017. Because what he mentions can help any of us with interpersonal conflicts. And what he wants us to realize is there are three very helpful recommendations he wants to make that can assist us when we get at odds with other believers. What does he tell us here in this passage? Well, first of all, he tells us, admit the reality of the problem. Again, notice, this is the first time in the book of Philippians where Paul addresses or directly references a problem that's going on in the church here at Philippi. And notice here in verse 2, he entreats two women to resolve the conflict that exists between them. Verse 2, Paul says, I entreat Eudia, and I entreat Syntychea to agree in the Lord. Now, notice, we're not given any details. We're not given any of the specifics about the friction the two of them feel towards each other. But for Paul to use that word entreat twice, or some of your translations, it says plead, it means the situation between the two of them was not moving forward towards reconciliation. It had stalled. So the place to begin is to admit a problem exists. Well, How do we admit a problem exists? Well, I think there are three things we need to admit. First, we need to admit our tendency to clash with each other. Unfortunately, believers are not above using the violent ways of the world, and newspapers love to print. The media loves to tell a community when these things happen. It sells. It's juicy gossip to be able to spread when anger and animosity breaks out within a church. But you know, those events, as sensational as they are, are actually a very small percentage of our battles. The vast majority of our battles are smoldering resentments. Our feelings were hurt. Our pride was trampled. We were overlooked. We were not selected. Someone else got the credit. Our idea was ignored. I was not even invited to attend. Yeah, our pride. And most of the time, then, we don't go load guns. We don't then prepare bombs. We don't plan a public confrontation. Instead, our resentment is expressed in passive aggression. We avoid the person. We change Sunday school classes. We sit in a different place. We limit our interaction with them. We build a different set of friends. Or if push comes to shove, we just start attending a different church. By the way, did you know that this kind of behavior has been recorded in the scriptures throughout history? Cain and Abel got crossways with each other. So did Jacob and Esau. Joseph and his brothers, they didn't get along with each other until later in life. And there was even a period where Moses had a falling out with Miriam and Aaron. David and Saul, they were antagonists. In fact, even in the New Testament, we see this tendency to clash. The disciples bickered over who was the greatest among all of them. The church at Corinth was split into factions over spiritual gifts, lawsuits, immorality, and the unrestrained use of grace. So the first step is just simply to admit that we have this tendency to clash with each other. But we need to do more than just that. It's more than just an admission We need to admit that there's a second issue that's also in play. And that is our tendency to rationalize. (laughs) See, when the clash occurs, all of us, myself included, we have developed this ability to either deflect it or spin it. We're going to do one of those two. To deflect it means we're going to place the blame completely on that other person. The conflict is there because of what they did. Because of their choices, because of their vile motives. I mean, obviously, I'm here. I'm completely above reproach in the matter. That's deflection. Or if we don't deflect, then we become a spin doctor. We explain the situation in a way that makes it sound like nothing can be done to change it. Oh, we're just from be- different backgrounds. We're from uh, we just don't see eye to eye on this. There's there's nothing that can be done. We just rationalize. But but again, if we deflect or if we spin, it doesn't really matter which one we do. The end result is a broken relationship. We don't pray for them and we honestly, we don't want anything to do with them. Which brings us to the third issue of what to admit. And that is our tendency to avoid. Why do we tend to avoid resolving conflict? I think part of it is because many followers of Jesus believe it's wrong to experience any conflict with someone else. Folks, I don't believe conflict is necessarily wrong. For conflict flushes out an issue that needs to be dealt with, much like a hunter flushes out prey. So conflict is not a sin issue to avoid, nor is it a power issue to win. The reality is God uses conflict in our lives to do things in us that otherwise would never, ever be touched. It helps us to grow. It helps us to mature spiritually as we realize there are things inside of us that we have got to deal with, some of which are not that good to see. And by the way, there you know the early church had this struggle all the time? Let me give you a couple of examples. They had their share of conflicts. Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. Some of the widows in the early church were not being equally cared for. And did you know that the issue broke along racial lines? (laughs) The church members then started mumbling and grumbling. See, here's that smoldering resentment because of the way the widows were not being dealt with. But you know what they did? They dealt with it. And we see in in Acts chapter 6, it says the church grew and prospered. Because the conflict was resolved appropriately. Let me give you another one. Acts chapter 15 and verse 2. There were some that stood up and began to demand that everyone needed to be circumcised if they were going to be saved. It was a requirement. And by the way, in Acts chapter 15... The language there tells us it almost caused a riot to break out in the church. The disagreement was so strong for and against that concept. But again, the church dealt with that conflict well, and the church grew and prospered because of it. Let me give you another one. Acts chapter 15, and verse 39. The first missionary team, Paul and Barnabas, broke up over John Mark. Why? Well, Acts 13.13 tells us that John Mark was with Paul and Barnabas on the very first missionary outreach mission. Partway through, though, John Mark gives it up and goes home. Now, they started in Antioch, but that's not where John Mark went. That's not home. Acts 12.12 tells us home is where his mom lived in Jerusalem. That's where he went. John Mark gave it up and went home to Mama. So that later, when it came time to return to those first planted churches, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark along. Paul did not think that it was appropriate. What was the tension? The tension is that Barnabas was concerned about the person. John Mark was his cousin. He wanted to give John Mark a second chance. Paul, on the other hand, was more concerned about the work being done right. He didn't think it was appropriate to have to babysit John Mark in giving him a second chance. The result is that Paul and Barnabas broke up. Paul took Silas, as we know, and started around one part of the loop back to these other churches. Barnabas took John Mark and went around the other way of the loop. Question, did they ever meet in the middle? We don't know. But you know what we do know? Colossians 4:10, 2 Timothy 4:11, Paul later refers to John Mark as an important as an important part of his ministry. At some point there was reconciliation and restoration. This happened all through the early church. And that's why Paul wants us as he pled with these two ladies, just admit That This is going on. Admit the tendency to clash. Admit the tendency to rationalize. Admit the tendency to avoid. And then that leads us to Paul's second recommendation, which is the need to adopt the biblical standard of harmony. Notice he says in verse 2, Agree in the Lord, or agree with each other. In other words, restoration and reconciliation is the aim. Not winning, not being right, not being vindicated. But if we're careful, it's easy to let unresolved conflict, just we just avoid it. That's the way the world handles it, isn't it? The world basically says, don't deal with it, just walk away from it, or walk away from them. But that's not the way the followers of Jesus Christ are to handle our conflicts. We march to a different drumbeat. We let the scripture set the norm. Verse two. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Parallel. Psalm 133, verse one. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. Or in the New Testament, First Peter three, verse eight and verse nine. Finally, all of you have unity of mind sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Can you stay here with, in 1 Peter 3 for a minute with me? Let me ask a simple question. How can Peter command living in harmony? Because of the new creation that is within us, and because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are now able to make choices that lead to harmony. In other words, folks, you will never ever be a victim of relational harmony. If you have relational harmony with something or someone, it's because of the choices you have made in that relationship what kind of choices? Well, let me give you a few. There's a lot. But let me give you a couple just to think about. James 4, chapter 1, tells us where most of our conflicts come from. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. Okay, that's, what, that's what's going on. So instead of that, the New Testament tells us there are some choices to make. For example, Romans chapter 12 and verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. See, the choice to love one another and to honor others promotes harmony. But it's a choice. We're here in Philippians 4. Remember what we've already studied just back up one or a couple chapters to chapter two. Remember verse three and verse four, what it taught us? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do you remember looking at that that Sunday? Selfish ambition is what can you do for me? Conceit is you can't do anything for me. Wow, does that cause conflicts? Whew. So what does Paul say? But in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Again, see the choices we can make of humbleness, of a genuine concern for others, and that promotes this harmony and reduces the conflicts. See, verses like this remind us of the biblical norm that is in front of us as the followers of Jesus Christ. But it's also important to understand and recognize why the norm is important. Why is it important? Because when we don't make choices like this, damage happens, at least in two different ways. One, there's a negative impact on the Lord. You're here in Philippians. Just keep turning left a little bit, back to Ephesians. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 3. Let me read verse 3 to verse 6, but think in terms of the negative impact on the Lord when we don't seek to resolve our conflicts with one another. Paul says, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. So what are we seeing here? God, through Jesus Christ, has done everything possible for us to have the ability to live in unity with him and to live in unity with each other. And so when we trash it by not working through our conflicts, then it causes the work of Christ to be called into question. Not only are people on the outside of the church going to wonder if the message we have, this gospel, has got any reality to it, but those on the inside of the church begin to question whether the message has any reality to it. They question if we're really one in the spirit, if we have one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Who are those people? Typically, it's our teenagers and our young kids. Have you ever heard the expression, little donkeys have big ears? Have you ever heard that? I mean, when Lucy and I grew up, we we always—I mean, when we were married and had our kids in the home, we always remembered, told each other that little donkeys have big ears. Kids are incredibly observant, but incredibly bad at interpretation of what they see. They hear things. They see the conflicts in the church, and when we don't work them out they begin to say, this is just a bunch of malarkey. Oh, we talk it. We don't do it. Damage is done to the Lord and the immature and the young people in our church when we're not working on our resolutions of our conflicts. But there's a second area of damage that can happen. There's a negative impact on the body of Christ. Uh, you're here in Ephesians. You need to jump all the way back to Hebrews for a minute. Um, Hebrews 12. Hebrews um, 12. Yeah, bounce there one other place with me, please. Hebrews 12, verse 14 and verse 15. Watch how unresolved conflicts can be a negative impact on just the church as a whole. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Okay, several observations let's make here. First, notice in verse 14, personal holiness and harmony with others are tightly connected. Tightly connected. Second observation, verse 15, notice that the grace of God is available to help us live in peace with each other. Third observation, verse 15, if left unresolved, the bitter root of conflict will impact those around us. In other words, it will damage and hurt the church. So back to Philippians 4 again. Paul has given us two powerful recommendations when we're involved with a conflict with with someone else. He says, first, admit the problem is there. Second, adopt the biblical standard of harmony. But then he gives us a third. He gives us a third because you can accept the first two and nothing will really change. So now the third one is to accept the responsibility to act. What does he say here? Again, I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Notice something. These two women are not fringe individuals, They worked side by side with Paul, planting and establishing and growing this church there in Philippi. What does that tell us? It reminds us again that godly, spirit led leaders, even in a church, can have serious relational conflict with each other. And when that occurs, what do we do? Well, that depends. Make it, let's consider several different scenarios. First, what's my responsibility when it's between me and another believer? Well, I have always found it interesting, fascinating, that the New Testament authors consistently say that the first person to recognize that a conflict or tension exists has the responsibility to go to the other. The issue is not who's at fault. The issue is who recognizes it first. They are to take the initiative. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, tells us that even if that other person is the one who sinned against us, but I recognize there's attention, I am to go and talk to them privately about it. That's why Romans chapter 12 and verse 18 tells us if it is possible. As far as it depends on you, notice that phrase, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So practically, when it's between me and another person, I am to go to that person and simply talk to them. Acknowledge, I sense a tension exists. Ask, what have I done that's contributed to the tension and the conflict that we're having with each other? And verbally commit yourself to wanting to seek a God-honoring resolution to all of this. By the way, if we just did those simple things, the vast majority of our conflicts with each other would go away. So after the first service, I'm standing in the back. An individual comes up and says, can I talk to you? It's a sure. He says, are we okay? Uh, I think we are. Why well, this kind of sense that there's a tension between the two of us? Practically applying this very thing. Admit it, come, talk, and see. There wasn't. There was a misunderstanding about something I had... Not said. (laughs) It was more my fault. It really was. Just go and talk, and it will clear up so many possibilities. But you know what? There's always a chance you go and there is something, but that other person will refuse to deal with it. That's why I said notice as far as it depends upon you. We can't force it. But leave the door open to talk in the future. But know as far as it depends upon you, you've done what you can to try to resolve it. Okay, what about another scenario? What's my responsibility when it's between two other people? I'm not involved, but I know it's going on between two others. What about that scenario? Well, look at verse 3 in, in Philippians 4 again. What does he say? He, he tells one of his true companions there in the church, help these women interesting that word help literally means to grab, hold, and pull together. So it it implies giving assistance. In other words, we don't take sides, but we lovingly coax the two to come together, meet, and talk about it. Now, remember, though, we are not the Holy Spirit. My wife is, but I'm not, okay? Um, (laughs) We can't force others, but we can encourage them to Reconcile. And for heaven's sakes, give them time. Conflicts that are immediately resolved are typically not really resolved. It typically means someone has just caved in, but the hard heart work of reconciliation was never really done. Give them time. Galatians 6.1. What's my responsibility when it's between two others? Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, and by the way, unresolved conflict between believers is a sin, unresolved conflict, then you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Ooh, notice, helping others reconcile is not the task for the new or young believer let those that have some spiritual maturity meaning they've had to deal with resolving conflicts themselves be the ones that come alongside to be of help in that situation i'd like to also suggest that there are some others who shouldn't help i would suggest that if you are not in a place of if you are not in a place of spiritual authority you're not directly part of the problem or you're not directly part of the solution Stay out of it. Now, you may know of a conflict between two people. Don't question others to find out information and facts about what's going on. If you're going to talk to someone else, go talk to someone who's more spiritually mature, who's in a proper role and place, and say, do you know that this is going on? I would really encourage you to go help those two. See, that's appropriate. But it may mean that you just need to stay of it. So, what's Paul said? Very practical. Admit the conflict. Adopt the biblical standard of reconciliation. Accept the responsibility to act. Stan Makeda used to be an all star hockey player. And when he was actively playing hockey, he would typically get into a lot of fights. And then suddenly that stopped. It stopped when his eight-year-old daughter asked a very grown-up question. She said, Daddy, how can you score goals when you're always in the penalty box? (laughs) (laughs) Admiral Phelps, outside Quebec, learned the lesson too late. Stan Makita as a hockey player, learned it in time. What have we learned? What have we learned? Let's pray. Father, you know that I have got a great deal of conflict avoidance reactions in life, and yet you also know that those times when your Holy Spirit has prompted me to go to that other person, that there has been some incredibly supernatural, powerful work that has resulted between us and inside me, a work that needed to be accomplished. And it wouldn't surprise me, Father, this morning, if there are a number of people here that are sensing the prompting of your Holy Spirit again, because there's been a conflict that they've not addressed. Oh, they've known it's there, but they've not taken the initiative to go. And to simply say, it's there. I sense something, what have I done? What can I do? I want God to be honored in this. Father, that takes courage. And Father, that's not human nature. And that's the point. We're more protective. We're more concerned about our image, our status, our egos. But your Holy Spirit can help us supernaturally make those choices to humble ourselves, to go in honor, to go and be gracious, huh. because that's what you did with us. So, Father, may we follow your model in all this. That which we so have so wonderfully benefited because the animosity between us and our Heavenly Father is gone now in Christ. That we can follow that same model in resolving our conflicts with one another. Father, would you do that? Please. Keep me sensitive to that. Keep each one of us in this room sensitive to that. So that Our message has got authenticity, that this body remains strong and growing in Christ, and that ultimately Jesus Christ is honored for the powerful things he can do in our relationships with each other. Father, that's our prayer in Jesus' wonderful, life-changing name. Amen. Hey,
0: thanks for being with us today. That's www.RanchoBaptistChurch.org Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.